I'm Lake Miller. And I'm Hannah Brown. Welcome to Gem City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We're from the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity and inclusion. In this episode, Lake talked with Gloria Papatera about interpreting. They discussed how Gloria became an interpreter, vicarious trauma associated with interpreting, and dealing with a difficult situation as an interpreter. Enjoy! Welcome, Gloria, or welcome back, I guess. You're like a seasoned veteran of the podcast, so (laughs) (laughs) glad to have you back. Thank you. So today we are going to be talking about interpreting. Uh, So I know there's been kind of snippets of interpreting when through random interjections or random things that others have said over, you know, these last couple episodes. But today we're going to really explicitly talk about what interpreting is. So I want to start just briefly with why did you become an interpreter? You know, like all of these questions are going to be loaded. So I'm just going <laughs> to. <laughs> just warning um, me now. So it's funny because growing up, um, I really struggled with my CODA identity. I didn't really want to be an interpreter because I was doing it all the time for my parents. Um, my mom is hearing, but she speaks Spanish. So there was constant interpretation going on with that. And my dad, though he was very good at advocating for himself, um, he he also relied on me at times and um you know there were things that needed to be interpreted and things happened so when my mom came to me in the ninth grade and was like there's this really great program that you can do and you can take college classes and high school classes let's do interpreting um at the time I don't think that I was like rebellious enough to say no I don't want to do that right um so my mom really was the one that pushed me and I started my interpreting program um my freshman year of high school so I started taking classes at um, St. Clair Community College, um, and then I was taking classes at Wayne High School. Um, And my interpreting journey kind of started with the idea that, you know, it's a good profession. It's pretty flexible. I can make good money. You know, I already have the skill, so why not refine it and um, make money out of it, essentially, was the goal. That's why I pursued the program. But especially after I graduated from high school, I had about a year and a half or two years left after um, high school at St. Clair. So I did four years of classes and then I had two years afterwards. Um, I really started to fall in love with the profession. And it's just because, you know, as a CODA and as somebody who values deaf culture and deaf life so much, being able to now have access to like you know, being an interpreter, you're, you're in, in deaf people's most intimate moments. You are at their births, at their funerals, you are at their doctor's appointments, their, you know, family visits and things like that. Like as an interpreter, you are granted access to people in a very intimate way. And for somebody who really appreciates and like really feeds off of the culture of American Sign Language and deaf people, it was so enriching to be thrown into this world and to finally be able to like like interpreting gave me freedom to the language because even though I signed before, it wasn't to the extent um, that my training got me to, right? Um, And just learning so much about the language made me fall in love with it. And eventually like, I really did want to become an interpreter. And I, you know, I still to this day, I love what I do. It's not going to be my like long-term forever profession, but 
I love what I do because I love the people that I serve. Awesome. So you mentioned, you know, kind of starting to naturally interpret for your parents as you were growing up, just because you were in situations where that needed to happen. So I'm curious now as an actual interpreter, do you, do you translate for your parents if, or for your dad, if you're in situations I, I go by the like rule, you know, I have this skill, I have this ability. Why would I sit on my hands when somebody needs me to, to do my job? Um, and a lot of the times that can be really hard because, you know, I went to school for these skills. Like I have worked to refine them. I have been in the field now for almost 10 years. Um, I guess maybe not 10 years, like six, you know, but if you round it up, it's been a long time. Um, but when you, when you're working in this profession, like some interpreters will tell you, I don't interpret unless I'm getting paid. And I don't necessarily abide by that because as a CODA, I have this like need to make sure that the people around me are getting access as much as possible. So if I'm out at a restaurant, if something happens, I immediately take on that role because that's what I should be doing. That's what I should be doing is making the environment around me more accessible, no matter what. Um, I think a lot of hearing interpreters have the privilege to say, well, I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm not going to provide this service. And they are willing to sit on their hands while deaf people are present. But I am not somebody like if there is a deaf person in the room, I'm going to do everything I can, even if it's not my job that day to show up and present that accessibility because it's the right thing to do. So um, I do still interpret. I, whenever my hands need to be up, they will be up. If there's a deaf person in the room, there my hands will be up because that's, that's inclusion. That is making sure that's, that somebody feels like they're part of the conversation. So yes, I do still do that and I will do it for the rest of my life. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So for some people, uh, it might be pretty clear what interpreters do, but can you just briefly touch on what an interpreter's job looks like? Absolutely, I can. And this is one of my favorite topics because the truth is that deaf people and hearing people have no idea what we do. <laughs> That's the truth. A lot, of, um, a lot of deaf people will tell you that we're there to provide communication. And that is very much true. Um, but we're not there for the deaf people. We're here for the hearing people because the deaf people aren't the ones that need my service. The hearing people are. Um, so when I show up to interpret, I always say, hi, I'm Gloria. I'm your interpreter today. And I always make sure that I present and introduce myself that way to the doctor, the professional, or whoever the hearing person is. And then I engage as much as possible with the deaf person. This is my, my approach. It doesn't necessarily have to be this way, but an interpreter's role you know, what we've been taught is that you are in charge of communication. You just, you just have to facilitate the communication. We follow um, the CPC code of ethics. Um, it's the code of professional conduct is the CPC, which is um, something that all interpreters should abide by. And there are seven tenets. Um, every, the, the CPC is kind of like guidelines. They're not like strict ethics, like a doctor would have. Um, but they are guidelines that help interpreters kind of navigate those ethical dilemmas that we come across all the time. Like, should you give your deaf client a ride from home from the hospital? Answer is no, you should not. You should never, ever interact with your client in that way. But um, that code of ethics to me means that I show up and I'm not just providing language accessibility, I'm providing cultural mediation, which means that culturally, I am also blending the two worlds together. So an example that I have would be like, if I were to do a comedy show, you know, it is important that the deaf person gets the same experience as a hearing person. So 
when the hearing people are laughing, the deaf person should be laughing. Um, there might be a little bit of a lag because there's always a natural lag while the interpreter is taking in the information, processing it and outputting it. Um, but the point is to make that equivalent. And sometimes language can be funny. You know, some things don't translate. Um, some jokes don't translate. They're not as funny. You know, deaf jokes, hearing people don't get. Um, so, and vice versa, like in Spanish, things just don't translate to things in English. Um, so language is a lot more challenging, I think, than people think. Um, and it's very fragile. I think I've told this story several times. Um, I think you're familiar with it, but like when I first started interpreting, I had an assignment where we were working with child protective services, which is very serious because obviously, you know, you're dealing with the custody of a child, you're dealing with parents, you don't really necessarily always know intricately what the situation is or why CPS is involved, um, but you're there regardless. And for that assignment, there were three of us. And we all were in constant communication. Like if one of us would show up, we'd be like, this happened today. So that the next person who showed up would be ready and prepared. So there's a lot of like, um, with ongoing assignments, there's a lot of communication that happens in the background to ensure that the interpreter is prepared to arrive um, at the next session. But there was one day that the three of us were busy. We had other assignments and the agency's job is to cover an assignment. So somebody needed to show up for the CPS case and somebody did show up. But what ended up happening was that the deaf client signed something like me and my kids are this, you know, we're this. And this, this sign can mean a million things. Like we're connected, we have a bond, I get them. Um, it's this idea of like my brain lights up, your brain lights up, we're on the same page. Um, and you can voice because English has this beautiful ability to add words to anything. You can voice almost anything that goes along that line for that. Um, but that day the interpreter chose to voice that me and my kids have telekinetic powers. And the word telekinetic was used for this sign. What ended up happening with just that one word was that those parents were then subject to a psychiatric evaluation because the interpreter didn't correct herself. She didn't clarify and say, no, that's an interpreter error. That's not what she meant. Um, so the CPS workers like, you don't have telekinetic powers. This is a concern of like mental health, um, which also plays in because those parents were also low income. So I'm wondering if the interpreter's perception of those parents caused her to use a word like that because she perceived them as being lower income or lower cognitively. Um, because interpreters like any other human carry stereotypes and biases. And those things tend to bleed into our interpretations whether we want them to or not. Um, so that's a case where I talk about like, that's language fragility, right? Like the fact that this word could have been used in so many different contexts, but because she used it in that context, it really had a very severe impact on their case. And I mean, you're talking about custody of kids. So um, it did get pretty messy after that because what is the CPS worker supposed to do? You're hiring an interpreter who's supposed to be qualified and certified to do this. Um, so, it just get, you know, our job is to make sure that no matter what we do, that the deaf client and the hearing client and all parties involved are on the same page. And sometimes that is more than language. Sometimes that takes clarification. Sometimes that takes understanding where the deaf person is coming from culturally. Sometimes that takes understanding the hearing world and being able to translate that and, and explain that to the deaf person in a way that they can react. Um, 
all of this is happening while I'm trying to translate the message in my head. So interpreting is much more than going from one language to another. It is constantly checking in and making sure like, is this culturally well done? Is this here? Like you can't, in any language, you can't separate the culture from the language, but especially in American Sign Language because everything you do is culturally inundated. Um, so what we do as interpreters is more than provide linguistic backup. We're providing constant feedback. We're watching your cues. We are reading your body language. We are watching what you do. We are psychosocial experts as well as linguistic experts, um, which is why we're really expensive because we're doing a million things at once. Um, and a good interpreter will be able to provide that range of services. If an interpreter can only facilitate communication, they're, they're limited in their skills because there's so much more to interpreting than language. So as you said, that's why it's so expensive. So who picks up the tab on this? Okay, so if this can kind of range, you know, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, deaf people have a right to interpreters, period, point blank. Um, as an organization or as a company that is for profit, you fall under the category of you are required to provide an interpreter, whether you want to or not. The only exception is if you have 10 or less employees working in your office, um, then you're not required to provide an interpreter. However, we get a lot of pushback with doctors. A lot of doctor's offices will say, no, we don't provide those services. Like, you're not the one providing the services. Your job is to go out, find the agency, contact the agency, get an interpreter, and then you pay for the service. That, that is the only job that an organization has is to pay for the service. Um, and that goes with everything. The deaf client should never pay for an interpreter unless they need an interpreter for something, sometimes for personal things like funerals or weddings or things like that. Um, agencies won't cover that cost because it's personal, but things like the doctor's office, court, um, anything that you can really think of, traffic stop, you know, anywhere where a interpreter may be needed, um, you're going to also need to, the agency. The agency is that third party um, organizational tool that provides the interpreter. Um, and it can be expensive, but the truth of the matter is, is that having an interpreter provides accessibility and whether it's expensive or not, it's a part of the law that organizations provide that service. So an organization should always be the one covering that cost out of pocket and a deaf person should never cover it. Um, this also applies for like video relay service, which is like, like I see you Lake, you see me. And then normally while I'm working, I would have a headset in and maybe I'm talking to, you know, the executive director of NCCJ, Adrian, and Adrian is telling me, Adrian, Miller, she's telling me, okay, well, so Lake, the, for this meeting, we have to do this. And I'm interpreting, I'm interpreting, I'm interpreting. You're watching me. And then you talk to me and I'll be like, yeah, yes, Miss Miller. Like, I'll be sure to make that meeting on Monday. Um, thank you so much for the update. Like I'm providing that middleman communication. And that video relay service is also at no cost. Essentially how it works, it's like picking up a phone number and calling your friend. It's the same thing, except you're gonna be automatically connected with an interpreter. And you, I'll still be talking, like Adrian is still talking directly to Lake, but um, they're just doing it through me. And that service is also free. A lot of hearing people get scared when they hear like um, some interpreters. Uh, I don't personally do it because of my, and I'll explain in a minute, but. 
some interpreters have this little like script that they'll say they'll be like hi this is a message for somebody who uses american sign language i'm the interpreter you can go ahead and talk whenever you're ready the problem is is that a lot of hearing people don't know what that is they don't know what a video relay service is they've never spoken to a deaf person on the phone so hearing that they're like i don't want to pay for these services i don't know any deaf people um and i've found that for me personally having that script when i um video interpret is kind of damaging because it kind of takes away the power from the deaf person because now I have to explain to the hearing person what my role is while waiting for the deaf person. The deaf person's waiting for me to finish up. Um, so a really easy way that I've learned, somebody taught me how to do this is to say, hi, my name is Mary Sue and I'm speaking through a female sign language interpreter. Um, Cause sometimes you have a male or male identifying person on the other end and to hear a female voice say, hi, my name is Larry Bird and I'm you know, calling for this, they're like, your name is definitely not Larry. Like, <laughs> so um, being able to like that, that, again, that's where language is really important, but that service is provided at no cost as well. Being able to call it's Sorensen, Convo, Purple. There's a lot of different VRS companies, but they all fall under FCC jurisdiction and the FCC provides this service um, and make sure that it's at no cost to the 466, 430 million deaf Americans that live here, so. Awesome, thank you. Um, so the, the thing that really kind of comes up or, or that really stands out to me when I think about interpreting is exactly as you were saying, being part of those really intimate, really private moments. And it occurs to me that particularly, I think medical situations, like you're hearing really, not only personal, but really emotional information about people. I mean, potentially, you know, needing to tell this person that they have a terminal illness, you know, while yes, it's the doctor telling them through you. I still imagine that that puts some level of emotional strain or emotional burden upon you as the interpreter. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about what it's like to be in some of those really intimate, really emotional situations? Sure. Um, you know, something that interpreters, a lot of interpreters suffer from, especially interpreters who have been doing this for a long time. And these are, this is new in the interpreting community. These conversations are new. These aren't conversations that, you know, we've been having. Interpreting has been around for a long time. And before to become an interpreter, the only way that you became an interpreter was if you broke into the deaf community and the deaf people approved you and then they would call you and you would volunteer your time and interpret for people. So that's how the interpreting profession began. And those interpreters, those grassroots, like original interpreters, these were the hearing people who took it upon themselves to learn a new language and a new culture. Um, but the truth is, is that as a working interpreter, especially, you know, in serious situations, like I said, we are in their most intimate moments. And that is something that I always, always try to remember and keep at the front of my mind because I shouldn't be here. Like, this isn't my right to be here. Like, yeah, they need me, but I, I'm not, I don't have to be here. Like, this is not my right. Um, and so having that extra sensitivity is really important. You have to have empathy. You have to care about your clients. Um, some interpreters will tell you that you're only there to facilitate the language. Like don't touch them. Don't interact with them. Like go in and out of the hospital room, you know, and for liability reasons and insurance reasons, sometimes that is necessary, but you know, if you know the client for me personally, for me personally, and this is not something that 
every interpreter does. And I really want to preface that. Um, for me, if you're in the hospital with this person and you're about to give them bad news, you are already as an interpreter, you're receiving that vicarious trauma. Um, you know, and that is something that I deal with on a regular basis. Like we are traumatized every day. Um, by having interactions such as these where we either have to give really bad news or, you know, we are the ones that are advocating on behalf of clients because maybe clients don't know that they have the ADA. Some deaf people don't know what we do either. Um, and that makes it really hard because deaf people might not know how to advocate for themselves, but we do. Um, and even though advocating is not specifically mentioned in our code of professional conduct, as an interpreter, as a CODA, I feel like there is a certain amount of responsibility that I have. And I justify that advocacy through cultural mediation. Deaf people do not have access to the same things that hearing people do. So you have to advocate because culturally you have to make that an equivalent. Um, but I don't know how many times I've left an assignment and just been like, I'm never going to see this person again. You know, like I might never speak to this person again. I might never know what's happening, you know, especially with video relay. Like I had a call a couple years ago of this woman who was trying to, she was trying to leave her husband and the husband didn't sign. And when we got on the video phone, the first thing she said to me was my husband doesn't sign and he doesn't know that I'm filing divorce papers right now. Like we were going to do it right then. And she was like, he wouldn't be happy if he found out. So if he comes in, I'm going to give you this look, be prepared. And if you see that look, we're going to talk about whatever she gave me. She gave me like a topic to like, her lawyer was very aware that that was something that was happening. I'm assuming that it was probably an abusive situation. So she was trying to ameliorate it and make sure that, you know, everything was good. So she gave me the interpreter, that background information. Right. But I still think about her. I think about her two years later. Like, I don't know what happened to her. I don't know what happened to her husband. I don't know, you know, and that's, that's trauma, you know, having to tell somebody, even though it's the doctor that they have cancer, you know, the first time I had to do that, like, it's heartbreaking, you know, because even though it's the doctor saying it, it's coming out of you. Your voice is the one saying it. Your hands are the ones saying it. So it's really hard not to internalize those moments and not to take them with you. And I think that any interpreter who tells you to disconnect is an interpreter that doesn't have enough empathy or compassion to understand that the human body, the human mind feels things anyway. And as an interpreter, you should be allowed to feel things by suppressing that vicarious trauma that we get from doing some of these assignments. I mean, I've had 911 calls. I've had domestic violence. I've worked in CPS. I've been at the hospital. I've had really horrible things that have happened to people. I've had really great things happen to people, but in those really horrible moments, like it's like, it's happening to you. It feels like it's happening to you. And as an interpreter, you have to take care of yourself because that vicarious trauma um, can impact you. It can impact your work. It can impact the long-term because you're constantly being inundated with, you know, discrimination and bad, like bad news, you know, telling somebody they have cancer. I think the first time I did that, I called the agency and I was like, I, I need a break. Like I need like a week because you have to recover from that. You need to mentally and emotionally recover sometimes from some of these assignments because we are human. It's impossible to suppress our feelings. Um, and even though I'm there for the language, I have had several assignments where I've been interpreting and I've been doing a damn good job, but I've also been crying and I've been emotionally stimulated because 
of the situation that's going, but my, my mind is always in work mode. And I think that that, I think that when we're taught not to like connect with people, when we're taught to disconnect from situations in our interpreter training programs, the reason that they do that is because they want to prevent us from carrying that vicarious trauma and prevent us from taking it home. But it's also lying to our faces because it's not possible. You cannot disconnect from a client, especially something like ASL that is so intimate and so culturally tied. There's no way to take away emotion out of that. So my opinion is if you can embrace that emotion and you understand that it's vicarious trauma, take care of yourself as an interpreter, because we see and hear things that a lot of people don't, you know, domestic violence cases, child abuse cases, like those things happen in the deaf community, jail, like prison, things like that. Those things happen in the deaf community and they can be really hard on interpreters. Um, but I think as an interpreter, the important thing is also knowing your limits, because if you are outside of your limits, how are you going to give a good linguistic interpretation and a good cultural mediation? So I give the example of the time that I cried while I was giving some bad news and I was able to focus in that moment, but have there been times where I've been like, this is too much for me. And I don't know if I can continue successfully interpreting without, you know, compromising the meaning of the situation. Yes. And that's when you call your agency and somebody sends somebody else. Um, you know, I, I have a mentor who one of her very first assignments, she showed up at a hospital and it was a family who had just lost a child. Like, a three-year-old child that had been sick with some things, you know, they had had this kid and, and the child died and she was pregnant when she showed up to the hospital. And when she showed up, she said, I did everything I could in that moment. She said, I interpreted, I did everything I could, but I called the agency and I asked for a replacement because it was too intense emotionally for me to be able to interpret successfully. So there's a balance between like, embracing your emotions and putting that into your interpretation and like allowing your vulnerability to enhance the linguistic translations and the linguistic interpretations. But there's also a limit to where those emotions can be interfering with the language. And as an interpreter, you have to learn what that line is. Um, and everything is traumatic. <laughs> I laugh, but it's true because you're living, you are speaking through somebody else's lens constantly. It's always, I this, I that, I'm mad at you, I'm this. And even though you might not be feeling these things, sometimes I get off work and I'm like, I'm so exhausted. And I've only worked three or four hours, but I'm exhausted because of the emotional energy that I've had to spend. Um, A, translating and interpreting, that's, that's, a job in and of itself, but then having to deal with like controlling myself and making sure that I'm doing the best, you know, it's a constant battle, um, trying to find that balance. Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah.